for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think. Jamil Sainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my brewing brothers and sisters. We're back in the studio again. Hey, everybody. I'm Jamel Zanishev. I'm here with my uh, good buddy and co-host, John Palmer, uh, author of How to Brew, probably the finest book on uh, on uh, learning how to brew. I, uh, I, I'll tell you, a uh, uh, couple of people at work, they discovered that I'm, I'm into beer, and they go, ah, you know. So they all ask me, "How do I learn how to brew? You know what, what you know what do I do?" And I, I said, "Well, okay. Step one: buy yourself a copy of this book, How to Brew, and you know, read through the first few parts of it. You don't have to read the whole thing. Don't worry. There's a lot of a lot of stuff in there. I think the the thing about How to Brew that might scare a new brewer off is that, uh, uh, you know, it'll take you all the way through all grain." You know, it takes it tackles some advanced topics. So no it matter, like a thick, yeah. Well, no matter where you are in the brew process. So when I first saw how to brew, uh, yeah, I already knew how to brew, and I got one. I think uh, I won it as a prize at a uh, for a competition. I started flipping through. I'm like, hey, I know how to brew. Hey, what's this guy going to tell me? I started flipping through it. I'm like, oh, it looks pretty interesting. And then I I had a question one day. I don't know mash temperatures or something. I'm like, well, I wonder if it's in there. Sure enough, it's in there. Uh, like a water question one day. Wonder if it's in there. Sure enough, it's in there. You know, so I started saying, you know, this is actually a really good book. There's a lot of stuff in here. If you're already uh, an advanced brewer, I guarantee you, there's still something in there that you don't know is in that book, and and you will find cause to reference that book. And so I started giving out as gifts to a lot of my friends that I already brew that people I'd brew with. I've got I got a Christmas present for you. They're like, oh, uh, yeah, I know how to brew. <laughs> It's like, trust me, you're going to find something in here that, you know, I, I, I find this the best book on, uh, you know, uh, answering a lot of the, the uh, you know, fundamental brewing questions. And I've found stuff in here that, that, you know, I didn't know. And they're like, oh, okay, you know, you seem to know a lot about brewing. Sure, you know, I'll give it a try. And uh, uh, really fantastic. So. I don't know why I'm I'm raving about yes. <laughs> how to brew, but uh, I really like it. Every time I start talking about it, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's a really great book. So uh, this one guy, this uh, product manager where I work, he's like, I said, you know, you don't have to read the whole thing, you know, but he, uh, he you know, uh, he emailed or messaged me and he wanted to know. And I said, yeah, pick this up. Yeah, check it out. So uh, he, 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 he told me, like, the next day he goes, okay, I read the entire book. <laughs> I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> you know, I don't think I've read the entire book. And uh, he goes, I'm really excited. It, it, it really made me even more interested in brewing. He says, I'm going down to Brewcraft in San Francisco for, uh, I'm, I'm going to pick up my equipment. They're going to kind of give me a little lesson and uh, kind of walk me through it. I'm thinking, perfect. You know, they'll, uh, you know, link up with a good homebrew shop and, uh, you know, read something like how to brew. You don't have to read the whole thing. You know, read the, the parts that apply to you now, uh, you know, whatever stage you're at. And, uh, you know, link up with a good homebrew shop and, and uh, get familiar with them. And, uh, you know, you'll be making great beer. Not not just good beer, but great beer. Beer that, you know, you feel like very proud to present to your friends. 
beer, you know, you feel like you can't buy in the store, things like that. John, you got anything to say about uh, maybe brewing classic styles? I do. I mean, that <laughs> brewing classic styles is hands down awesome. the best recipe book out there. That's it? Wait a minute. I waxed eloquent well, for, for 15 minutes about how to brew. How, I don't, I, uh, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it's got pages in it. Yeah, there's yeah. this other book. It's got writing in it. Yeah, they tell you about some recipes. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I'm a, I'm a man of few words. At least I try to be. And uh, Yeah, we've read your book. Yeah. <laughs> Brewing Classic Styles is an awesome book. It's it's the best recipe book you can get. It go it explains more about what a what a recipe really consists of than any other book out there. Um, in so many recipe books are just a malt bill, and or you know or just say you know this kind of yeast, but not how much. Um, I mean. Brewing Classic Styles is the one that goes in-depth and really gets you understanding uh, what makes up the beer. Surprised you can read Jamil's note card with his messy handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had trouble finding the teleprompter. I, 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 uh, <laughs> that's, that's weak, John. I, I don't know. I, you know I, I trust you for uh, you know in-depth brewing knowledge, uh, technical questions. But when it comes time to pimp... <laughs> And get people to buy it. I think, I think you're leaving me here hanging high and dry. I, I don't know what the hell's going on, Jamil. All of our friends know that I pimp you all the time. Yeah, yeah. I do love my Johns on yes. the street corner out there in Oakland. I do love my Johns. I do. All right, get on with it. All right, so today we're—I don't know what what we're doing anymore. Uh, and now for something completely different. Yes, uh, enzymes. Uh, you know, enzymes are a huge part of the brewing process. Even if you're not an all-grain brewer, enzymes uh, have a, a big impact on uh, extract brewers and any brewer. Uh, you know, brewing would not be possible, I think, without enzymes. So uh, what we're going to do uh, when we come back is we're going to get into... Uh oh, I'm sorry. You know, I completely... <laughs> I'm just having such a good time here. I, I neglected to mention we have Colin Kaminsky, uh, master brewer at uh, Downtown Joe's in uh, in Napa, California, and uh, he is uh, probably one of the most knowledgeable people I know about every aspect of life. Not 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 just brewing. Don't want and you to feel like a third fiddle here. Yeah, Colin. he's, he's here. <laughs> I, yeah, keep keep on. John got me so verklempt, you know, that... Uh, Maybe you should let Palmer do it, Colin's plug. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, uh, it was a better just, plug than... Just yeah. totally lost. Uh, but uh, uh, it's good to have you here in the studio. He he knows uh, everything about uh, about everything. And we also have one of the finest brewers I know, which is uh, Tasty McDole. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks. Uh, Am I, I here by myself? Yeah. Does nobody understand what, what we're about trying my, to do? Uh, can't you say a lot more about me than that? <laughs> I want to hear you wax for 15 minutes eloquently about taste. Can't you tell one of our old stories about the time you kicked my ass in some competition? Those are always good. Oh, Jesus Christ. The man of few words, I can't, I can't see the cue cards. <laughs> 
Yeah, man, a few words kicks a host in 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 the in the in the <laughs> yeah. junk show. Show. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, I'm liking. This. After this break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk enzymes. We'll define it for you. We'll get into to listener questions and everything you need to know about enzymes and brewing. Back after this. Smart. Brew Strong. This is Brew Strong. What's good for the earth, good for your body, and great for your brew? Organic Ingredients. This holiday season, the Organic Ingredient Experts Seven Bridges Co-op in awesome Santa Cruz, California, offers you the gift that keeps on giving to our planet. Sustainable, fair-wage ingredients to make the best organic homebrew you've ever had. There's a growing demand for organic products, and your choice to brew with them supports organic farmers worldwide. Brew organic, and you'll brew excellent beer that is free from chemical residues and genetically modified organisms, and you'll help contribute to a better world. If you're looking for organic ingredients, Seven Bridges offers a huge selection of USDA-certified kits and raw ingredients from 8 ounces to 50-pound sacks of grain, whole and pellet hops, and all the equipment you need. Seven Bridges, the organic homebrew expert since 1997. Visit www.breworganic.com. What have you gotten out of a vial of White Labs yeast? WLP 001, Cal Ale, baby. 23, Burton Ale. 008, East Coast Ale. Cal Common, WLP 810. It's going to be WLP 400 with beer. I got a sweet hoodie for my vial. Huh? White Labs, your source for great brewer's yeast, would like to invite all homebrewers to join the White Labs Customer Club. Redeem your empty vials for great White Labs merchandise and products. Free yeast, glassware, t-shirts, baseball caps, sweatshirts, polo shirts, and you won't believe what you'll get for 5,000 vials. Members also receive a newsletter packed with White Labs updates and facts, interviews with professional brewers, brew your own clone recipes, beercook.com recipes, and customer club stories. The White Labs Customer Club. Save your vials and get in the club. White Labs, it's all in the vial. Did you know that every day a brewcaster goes to bed hungry? Did you know that that brewcaster is silently calling for the help of people just like you? Do you know that every day the unicorn and the rainbow have to blow sailors for loose change? For less than the cost of a half-calf, quad-shot, venti, extra-hot, soy milk, triple-pump, hazel, low-fat foam, double-cupped macchiato a day, you can help starving adults in Pacheco. Your love can be felt for as little as 7 cents a day. 
Visit thebrewingnetwork.com slash donate to sign up today for as little as $2 a month. Private first class in the BN Army. Buy your way up the ranks as corporal, sergeant, ranger, or colonel with an easy-to-do monthly donation that keeps brewcasters alive and your favorite internet radio station broadcasting. No donation is too small to help those in need. Can't you find it in your heart to share your love with a brewcaster? In return, you will enjoy the wealth of knowledge that comes with every episode of the session. The Jamil Show and Yes, even that other show. Thank you for listening, and please sign up for your donation at thebrewingnetwork.com slash donate today. This Sit down next to it, grab yourself a paper towel, and watch those yeast have sex. You're listening to The Brewing Network. Back to your hosts, Jamil Zanashef and John Palmer. Putting the testicles in technical, this is Brew Strong. Oh yeah, we're talking enzymes on Brew Strong tonight. Uh, our fantastic uh, guest hosts here, Colin Kaminsky, uh, Master Brewer, and uh, Tasty McDole. Uh, probably... Another I would consider you a master brewer of the amateur set. <laughs> yeah, pretty much an amateur, yes. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Okay. You know, I have a quick question for you before yes. we get into enzymes, because uh, I'm a little curious. What is the difference what between... What is an enzyme? A, no, 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 what is the difference between a vitamin and a hormone? <laughs> you you can't make a vitamin. <laughs> Palmer likes that. Yeah. <laughs> This is the problem when Tasty brings in beer. Everybody drinks way too much. Again, when the beer is really, really tasty, what happens is people drink way too much. And if the beer is not so good, then people don't drink as much. So if you've noticed people drinking a lot of your beer, it's probably really good. This is the problem. Or your friends are just stupid, you know. (laughs) Weird senses of humor. Okay. I, I think the show has gotten out of control for me. I think I've lost my grip on, on So what you happening. wanted to say was, what are enzymes? No, no, no. What I wanted to say is Mason uh, emailed us, and he said, uh, uh, I'm having a problem with fermentability of the LME I'm getting, specifically the pills. I've never tried extracting enzymes before, but I'm going to try making the Dortmunder export from the book and I was hoping for some tips to get the most out of my process. Do I dissolve the LME in six gallons of water? The LME is liquid malt extract. In six gallons of water and then steep some two-row at 149 Fahrenheit for some amount of time. How long? I don't know. Okay, so when I got this email, I was thinking to myself, um, God, I get way too many emails to answer. And then I said, I said to myself, okay, i got to send him an answer. But I think the answer I need to give him is uh, something about enzymes. I don't think he understands exactly, you know, uh, the role of enzymes, what they are, things like that. He, You know, he's like, uh, I'm going to try extracting enzymes. Uh, mm. uh, I've never heard anybody phrase it that way before. So not that, right. not that uh, you know, Mason is, you know, somehow, you know, less intelligent than the rest of us, but he's new to this. And so there's some misconceptions that happen when, well, when you're new to brewing. So let, let, let's actually just start from the beginning. Where do enzymes come from? Right. And in fact, or, or what? Well, let's start even early. What is an enzyme? 
Well, uh, I'll, I'll uh, venture a, a wild-ass guess of a way of, to think about it. And this is, you know, not not as technically correct as it is a good way to think about it. And imagine this really big, long, stringy thing, and uh, we'll call it a molecule, for lack of a better word. And it changes its shape very rapidly in a way that we might call vibration. And... <laughs> And what it has this amazing ability to do is grab on to other molecules, and we're going to call those maltose or sugars or, or starches or anything, anything that we're concerned with reducing, and as a catalyst to cleaving them into smaller pieces. Mm-hmm. And once it's done cleaving it, it lets go until it grabs onto something else. So a little tiny bit of enzyme goes a long ways because what it does is it catalyzes it grabs onto something it does its job and it lets go it's not expended in the process used up it's It's like a chemical key so you 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 can get more cleavage i love cleavage i I love cleavage too so you know the more cleavage the better where was that fluff girl again (laughs) but john you're saying uh it's like yeah it's it's like a chemical key it's a catalyst uh it's a protein that acts as a catalyst in reactions and acts like a chemical key and uh yeah i agree with colin's assessment so 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 it it it, it's it's in the genetic code for barley but um barley's really smart okay so there's lots of little organisms like let's say yeast that that barley's trying to protect itself from and so in order to protect itself what it does is it hides all of its food sources as starch because yeast can't eat starch. Well, as a brewer, we want to eat starch the, and make it into sugars so that our yeast can eat it. And, our, and the plant, the barley plant, when it's growing, also wants to be able to eat that starch. It uses that starch to get itself growing. It to, converts to, to, to make sugars. that first little sprout. Mm-hmm. And the only way it can do that is to convert that starch to sugar. So it's, it's stored in the shape of starch simply to protect itself from, from bioorganisms. And in the genetic code of the, the barley also has the, the DNA that makes the enzyme that unlocks all of that starch. So it's actually a really smart way of protecting itself from the organisms that we're going to try to feed it to. It turns that starch into sugars. That is makes the wort that we use to make the beer. And fortunately, yeah. we've got this really brilliant person in our lives that we never sing his his <laughs> praises, and that's the maltster. Mm. And you know, we oh, I we were talking about me, but we, that's we, okay. We that's all right. we we pretend like as brewers, we're the only people that make beer. But the truth of the matter is, is our allied trade is malt. And maltsters do half of the work for us, or maybe even more of the work. And what they do is they take that, that little tiny piece of DNA, they soak it in water, they let that kernel sprout, which activates that whole enzyme package, and then they hold it at a high enough temperature that it stops growing and, and literally kills that seed, but doesn't denature that enzyme. To dry it out, yep. To dry Stop it out, the process, and yep. and so we have when we get the barley, it's called malted barley, um, because the maltsters already had it, and we get that that nice little enzyme package, um, perfectly stored with the starch that we need, and it's our jobs as brewers now to activate that enzyme package and get it working on that starch, and that's what we call mashing. So we do that by getting it wet. At a certain temperature. At the temperature that uh, activates the enzyme we want, which cr- there's a bunch of enzymes we can choose. And crushing the grain, which... Which exposes, exposes the starch. starch. To the water, right. To the water and to the enzymes. 
And uh, then right. the enzymes work on that starch and, and turn it into sugars. Or work on the proteins and uh-huh. uh, and reduce it to uh, to uh, simple amino acids. So so if we start if we if we activate uh, protease enzymes uh, at a lower temperature, we can actually take some protein out of the malts. Now that's not so important anymore. But a hundred years ago, if you didn't do that, you weren't brewing. So how that's many right. different enzymes are there in in barley malt? A uh, hundred. A <laughs> hundred and three. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot. I mean, there's there's several major classes, uh-huh. and but within a class such as the protease or and the peptidases, you have another you know twenty, thirty, forty uh, different you know ones that all belong to that group, and collectively they're proteases. And this enzyme may work work best at a pH of five and a temperature of one hundred and thirty. This other enzyme in that same group may work better at a pH of four and a half and a temperature of one hundred and twenty. It each there's a lot of different ones within a group, but there's uh, seven, eight major classes. And and uh, of all of these, are they all active when when you're brewing when you mash? The, they're all active to some extent, um, but as Colin said, Colin said there, there's lots. Of or each enzyme has a particular range where it's most active, where it, you know it's optimi- optimum activity, and then once you go above that range, uh, enzymes are denatured um, by heat, which means they fall apart. We we vibrated them so much that they actually shake themselves to pieces. Yeah, they straighten out and they don't they don't fit the lock anymore. And and they and then you can't get them back. So in different enzymes, it happens at different temperatures, right? So right. those lower temperature enzymes maybe get like denatured. Like a protease at a, at a... Well, I don't know about that. I know yeah. at 170-something, they all they denature. All, they all denature? Okay. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if... I'm, I'm assuming they all have different denaturing temperatures. Mm-hmm. But we That's use right. them... In, in brewing, we tend to use them from the cold side on. So if you want to use a colder one, you utilize it. Um, until you're done with it, and then you warm it up until the next one becomes mm-hmm. active. Well, here's an interesting question that uh, that I got in from uh, Michael, and he was saying, uh, Jamel, I'm trying to shave some time off my brew day. He he set up uh, this electric uh, hot liquor tank and, and this whole thing, and he was going to uh, try and uh, get the whole process going while he was still sleeping, and when he woke up in the morning, he'd be set. He said, I'll set the thermostat to a reasonable mash temperature, say 66 degrees C, and I'll set a timer on the circuit to kick in prior to me waking on brew day. In theory, I'd like to wake up and have the mash converted and ready to lotter. Uh, now, I reckon as long as we get a reasonable heat transfer, I may even add a mash stirrer to the rig so that heat evenly distributes better. All that will work just fine. He said, my problem is that I can see that I need to add the water to the grain the evening prior. Now, let's say the tap water comes through at 25 degrees C. Uh, then the mash will end up sitting for, say, eight hours around that temp of 25 degrees C before rising to mash temperature over a period of about an hour. Now, I like the fact that it passes through all temperatures of enzyme activity between 25 and 66 degrees C over the hour, like an infinite step mash, sort of. But I'm really worried about what impact the extended soak for eight hours at 25 degrees C will have on the mash. Any idea what might happen in that soak period? Yeah, you're going to grow lactobacillus. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah you, you, there's just no way to control the pH in that situation. So, you know, minutes at the right temperature, uh, you'll grow lactobacillus. 
and certainly over a long period of time, lactobacillus contaminates all malt. And uh, it, you will grow lactobacillus if you just leave it soaking. Even at 25C? Yeah. Not, not, not as fast as mm-hmm. if it were a little warmer, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, body temperature um, up to 110 yeah, you'll you'll grow lots of it. And let, let's say for some somehow you you didn't have to worry about lactobacillus. What happens with the enzymes? They they say? still function. Mm-hmm. The, you know, and Are you getting th- this any is, enzyme activity at twenty five degrees C? Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is one of my favorite experiments. Uh, uh, people wanted to figure out what their conversion uh, rate was, so a bunch of home brewers got together and they decided, okay, well, we're all going to mash at different temperatures, and then we're going to take that wort and store it. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to measure how much uh, sugars we converted. Well, of course, by the next day when everyone measured it, even though everything was cold, a hundred percent conversion had happened. Um, mm-hmm. uh, because you know, uh, in in the course of hours, uh, uh, you the amylase enzymes will convert all the sugar. Yeah. So you know, these enzymes, we talk about them only being effective, say, for amylase. We say you know from one hundred and forty-two to one hundred and fifty-eight mm-hmm. F. Uh, you've got the alpha and beta amylase is active. But the truth of the matter is they're active much colder. They just work so much slower that they're not useful to us at those right. temperatures. Well, and, uh, Damon, he, he wrote in and uh, uh, he said, Hey, I brewed your best bitter yesterday. And that's uh, obviously from the Brewing Classic Styles book. <laughs> Which book was that? That, that? that one that just had a bunch of pages. It's the awesome it. recipe book, yes. Brewing Classic Styles book, which you can pick up, uh, which is uh, authored by uh, John Palmer and myself. You can pick up in the Brewing Network store. Go to thebrewingnetwork.com, click on the store. You find uh, the Brewing Classic Styles. You can even get it signed. And uh, I, sh- I should have brought my copy in to get it signed, actually. <laughs> and if you're international and you want to order it over, overseas, <laughs> then you can get it from the HA <laughs> Direct. I don't even read it. Our- you know, they end up, they end up, these are book stops, uh, books, uh, door stops, uh, 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 people's toilets. I, I'm just... I'm just I'm just distressed. All right, so he says, Hey, I brewed your best bitter yesterday. I got interrupted right after the sparks. It started raining heavily. So I pulled everything into the garage and went out for dinner. Basically, the wart set covered uh, for two, about two and a half hours. I figured since it gets boiled anyways, everything ought to be okay. Uh, no, there are mass spoilage organisms, and right. and you, you don't run into them much in normal processes, but they're, they're well, he, pretty vile. Yeah. And he had sparged. So it's sitting in the kettle, and those same organisms can can spoil, make it vomity, things like that. Um, one of the things, enzyme-related, let's talk enzymes, right? Uh, if he had done a mash-out st- step and gotten the temperature to a point where it denatures the enzymes, as far as fermentability of the wort, it would have remained the same. It would have locked in, yeah. If he did not do that... If let's say he was mashing at you know 152 and then just ran it off and the and his sparge water was somewhere in the 150s Fahrenheit and then uh, let that sit in the kettle and it started to cool down, does not you know beta amylase become more active and wouldn't this affect the fermentability of the wort? Well, you know it would, but and this is a, this is the thing we should talk about about uh, alpha and beta amylase which is really important to understand, is once alpha amylase has had a, its, its round at the, at the sugars, beta amylase can't go back and reduce it simpler. And the reason for that is beta amylase needs to have two, uh, I believe it's two rings to hold on to before it can start cleaving. I think maybe, maybe it's even three rings before it can start cleaving off sugars. So 
alpha amylase just goes in and starts cleaving randomly. So what happens is, is when you use alpha amylase, you end up with a much less fermentable wort because what's going on is it leaves all these random shapes that beta amylase can't reduce any further. Mm-hmm. It, it just goes in and cuts randomly anywhere. But beta yeah, amylase that's where has to, dextrinase comes in. Uh, beta amylase has to start at. Uh, let's get back to that. Uh, beta amylase has to start at one end and work its way all the way down the starch chain. Yeah, uh, beta amylase works like a hedge trimmer. It takes the tips off, and uh, limit dextrinase it works on the odd joints um, of both the alpha and beta. And as as Colin says, the the alpha clips randomly around the chain um, on the straight sections, kind of like taking off twigs. So the limit dextrinase that's at uh, active at, w- at what temperature and, and the the effect is what it does is uh, it's active at the same temp- in the same temperature range as the alpha and beta from about um, sixty to sixty five C or one hundred and forty one hundred and fifty F um, beta amylase and limit dextrinase are both denatured as you get above one hundred and fifty degrees. Um, Limit dextrinase lasts a little bit longer than the beta amylase. Um, so let's say you're mash, you're doing a single temperature infusion mash at 155. You're over this this denaturing temperature. Um, one uh, study I wrote, a, a paper in the journal, noted that um, the beta amylase is reduced to 75% of its original activity after 30 minutes at 150F. So at 155, that would be a little bit more, a little bit faster. It would probably be down to about 40% of its original activity after 30 minutes at 155. So when you're when we talk about doing step mashes, we're talking about you know uh, optimizing or giving more time for the lower temperature uh, beta amylase to work uh, before we ramp up and get more activity out of the alpha amylase. Um, there's, boy, there's a whole bunch of things I can talk about here, and I don't know where to start. Um, let, me, let me pause there and make sure we've answered this first question. Well, one thing that uh, Bob Hansen at Brees had told me uh, when dealing with extracts is, you know, you're not necessarily locked into the fermentability of, of a given extract. If, uh, if you get that extract and uh, you can add some more grain to it, some more, which will have more enzymes, and the enzymes can have an effect on the, the sugars that are in that extract and actually make them more fermentable. Is that, is that not the case? That is true. You can use a diastatic ex- uh, malt extract that has active enzymes in it. Um, you can add extract, malt extract, to your mash. and uh, You can buy industrial you know, enzymes as well. That's true. Um, you can, yeah, you can buy you know alpha amylase and beta amylase enzymes. Um, you and as you mentioned earlier, Jamil, when you r- simply you know run off to the ke- to the boil kettle without doing a mash out, you know if that wort is still like 155, the alpha is still active and it'll continue uh, cleaving any residual starches. You know if if conversion wasn't you know 100% at the end of your mash, it'll continue working on the uh, the larger sugars in that wort. And, uh, you know, you can end up with a more, much more fermentable wort than you what you had uh, originally planned. But it, it's the beta amylase that makes the maltose. 
Um, that's it's the sole function of that enzyme is to make the two glucose uh, sugar called maltose, which is your prime brewing sugar, and it's, it's you know completely fermentable. Alpha amylase makes uh, a variety of sugars. You know, makes uh, maltose, it makes glucose, it makes maltotriose and maltotetriose. Uh, as well as oligocytes. Oligocytes are anything larger than the four-unit maltotriose, or maltotetriose, sorry. Um, and, uh, and that's, and that's where limit dextrinase comes in. Limit dextrinase is like the third, uh, third wheel here. It, it breaks up what we call the, the, uh, limit dextrins that result from these random, you know, cleavings of the starch molecules. Um, both the alpha and beta amylase can't can't break. If you envision a starch as like a tree branch, it can't break the joint. It can't cut the chain of the joint. It only can cut it on a straight section. Um, in the case of beta, it cuts it right at the tip. In the case of alpha, it can cut it anywhere there's a straight section. Um, but limit dextrinase can go in and separate it at the joint. And uh, so that's why we, you know, when we do a step mash to encourage fermentability, we do a low temperature rest, say in the 140 to 150 range, where you're not denaturing the beta amylase and the limit dextrinase so much. And we make lots of maltose. Uh, but we'll reach a limit on the amount of maltose we can make. Uh, after that, you know, there's the, you run into these limit dextrins, and then you need to raise the temperature, and alpha amylase, you know, becomes uh, more active at a, at a slightly higher temperature, 155, 158, and it will uh, succeed in cleaving off more of those starches into uh, larger sugars that. The remaining beta amylase and the remaining limit dextrinase can break down into smaller, more fermentable sugars. Well, and and we'll do shows in the future about uh, the specific temperatures and and trying to achieve more fermentable words and less fermentable words and and and, and various things like that. But I find this all very fascinating. And and one of the things uh, that I learned. Uh, Oh, uh, not too long ago, uh, about uh, enzymes and uh, starches is, let's say you take uh, you know rice, right? A lot of times people go, oh, I want lots of maltose in in my beer. I don't want to use rice or corn or any of those other starches, right? If you use rice and you use you know barley enzymes, you're going to get maltose. Yeah, because it's right. it's it's the the maltose is the sugar that's created by the enzymes that are breaking down the starch. It doesn't matter that the starch came from rice; it's still making maltose. So when you say, "Well, you know, I don't want any of those because because I want maltose," well, rice can can be turned into maltose. Absolutely, uh, all these different sugars. Uh, you know, any you know, I, I guess any starch could, right? Yeah, any starch. Um, and, uh, distillers even take potatoes and turn it into into fermentables. And it could be maltose. You could take a uh, they, potato. They, they could take it, it, take it all the way to maltose. It's based on the enzyme. The enzyme determines what kind of sugar you get. It's and, not right, the starch. And, right. The, and and to get that enzyme, you have to have the temperature, the pH, and the and and the concentration right as well. And you know that's what worries me a little bit about people. Like they want to say take ten gallons of an extract beer and put a pound of 
of uh, uh, barley in there, crushed barley, and utilize the enzymes out of it, you've diluted the enzymes so much at that point that they're not as effective. Mm-hmm. So it takes a lot longer than we think about mashing wise. You know, that's true. If, if I just change, you know, my my grist to grain, my grist to water ratio uh, in my in my mash tun, I change how fast my mash mm-hmm. takes and by the little tiny bits. And and you go make a big change, like dropping it into the boil. Uh-huh. Then suddenly you're making a big change. Well, and I got a, I got a question just about that. And uh, so uh, w- one point I wanted to make uh, on the on the rice and potatoes and and other starches is they do not have the same. There's other flavors that come from barley, yes. and it's it's not related to the maltose sugars. It's related Some of to which a are lot bad. of other other things that. So uh, yes, rice will have you know a different flavor, but again, you're you're still producing maltose, and that's a function of the enzyme. The 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 key that John was talking about as far as unlocking the starches and turning them into sugars. Yes, uh, it, the sugar it, it produces when you're using these barley enzymes is maltose, and and a lot of the rice syrups that you can get are. Uh, maltose uh, sugars. There's like 90% maltose sugars, is, is my understanding. Though, well, um, you know, I use uh, 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 maltose uh, that's derived from corn mm-hmm. to dry beers out all the time. There you go. All right, so Cameron had uh, written in. He said, for practical reasons, I've been usually been going with enough water to reach my false bottom, and then I add an initial 1.2 quarts per pound of grain. A friend of mine seems to think I'm using too much water, but cannot articulate why it's detrimental to my beer. The only real argument i found for using less water is that the enzymes do not have to travel as far to find starch, but with modern malting methods producing uh, modified grain with more than enough enzymes, is that even an issue? And if it is, wouldn't a few extra minutes of mash time solve it? You know, uh, myself, I, I use, uh, I do the exact same thing. I, I fill the, the the void under my false bottom, and then I use uh, 1.3 quarts per pound. So I'm using even more water than this guy. Did I have something to worry about? Are my beers not going to turn no. out right? What's going on? No, no, no. You're, <laughs> you're, you're right in the ideal range. Yeah. So that yeah. that that uh, that water, that foundation water that goes under the the false bottom, that's not a problem. No. No, and, and, and the water that you put on top to sparge as well is not a, not an issue, or to recirculate. If you, I like, I don't like the top of the grain bed to get dry because uh, I think that's a bigger issue. So I'll actually throw a couple inches layer on of uh, water on the top as well, but and the, and that doesn't dilute my enzymes enough for it to be an the, issue. There yeah. is there if is you a, look at the professional um, breweries around the world, they're usually brewing with uh, grist ratios of three to one, and a lot of times even up to four to one. Uh, that would be kilogram, uh, liters per kilogram, which is uh, equivalent to one and a half quarts per pound to two quarts per pound, and even even slightly more, two and a half quarts per pound. Especially if they're pumping the mash, which it, in order to use a traditional lotter ton, you have to pump the mash. Well, yeah. So then you're getting even thinner. Yeah. One of my under, my understanding is that uh, you know the the thicker mash favors uh, longer chain sugars or, or less fermentable wort, and the thinner mash favors, uh, uh, you know, uh, more fermentable sugars. Is that is that true? Is that is that what it's, that we used to? So there is an effect. It's minor. There is an effect. It's, it's a small effect, and I, it's not even worth worrying about because you can you can adjust your temperature, and exactly. well, and your temperature is probably effect. not very well controlled in a home brewery. You know, when I measure oh, speak temperature, for yourself. when I measure the temperature <laughs> on the edge of a homebrew mash tun, and uh-huh. I measure the temperature in the center, I get drastically different temperatures. Uh, well, and one thing uh, I'm curious about, can you know, 
Palmer, I, I think uh, you know when when I got a question like this, I, I turn to you because I I'm sure you got the answer. Can you list okay. off for me what what are all the different types of enzymes that uh, we're going to be using uh, or that af- affect us brewing wise? Give a, can okay. you give us a list of those a rundown? Sure. Um, the the first one is uh, beta glucanase, and it's uh, it's a low temperature enzyme. It's uh, active between um, so room temperature and like 120 degrees. Um, its preferred temperature range is uh, like body temperature to 110. And uh, what it does is it breaks down the gums in the grain. It breaks down the cellulose uh, in the gums. It, uh, it helps a lot with um, the viscosity, the thickness of the mash, makes it more fluid, more uh, you you can have laudering difficulties if you have a lot of beta glucan in your in your uh, mash. But fortunately, now, our maltsters deal with that for us, so the right. average person doesn't have to worry about that. That's right. You know, that's a that's a primary uh, purpose of malting is to break up um, both the proteins carbohydrate matrix that the starches are locked in, as well as breaking up these gums, the beta glucans that would make the mash really thick and make it very difficult to work with. Um, wheat has a lot of beta glucan, and that's the gumminess in the dough. And the purpose of malting, like I said, is to break that up. So that's not a problem. You don't, when you when you mash, you don't end up making a a big tub of dough. You end up you make mash. It's uh, much looser and clear. So that's your beta beta glucanase. Uh, next, you have your 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 proteases and your peptidases. Those are your protein enzymes. Um, your proteases take uh, what we refer to as a very large insoluble protein and cleave it down to a smaller, more soluble protein. It's also the enzyme that contributes to your head retention, and it's also the enzyme that contributes to your haze. It produces uh, those haze, enzy- haze size proteins, and the head retention proteins are very similar in size. Peptidases are what make your um, free amino nitrogen, your peptides, your amino acids, and uh, those. It's you can kind of you can kind of compare them to alpha and beta amylase. Your prote- protease, you know, takes the large proteins and makes them a little smaller, kind of like alpha amylase. It takes the large starts and breaks it down into you know a variety of larger sugars, whereas your beta amylase takes that starch and makes small, very small sugars. Same way your peptidase takes these uh, proteins and cleaves off very small peptides and amino acids. Now, both of those protein enzymes are both active in the same temperature range um, from uh, room temperature up to 150F. Um, they're both active throughout that range. Their preferred range is kind of a, is at the warmer end, typically um, 115 to 130 degrees Fahrenheit or 45 to 55 C, and you really can't differentiate between them at in your mash. You can't you know accentuate you know the fan enzyme over the the uh, head retention enzyme or vice versa. Um, it's kind of like when you throw. When you throw something in the blender and hit puree a couple times, you know you hit it once really quick. You can break it up, but if you hit it for any length of time, it's going to turn it to paste. Uh, it's it's not very controllable uh, with that. And that 
it, um, 100 years ago when we were using less modified malts, you needed a protein rest, and you needed the protein rest to break up the protein-carbohydrate matrix that um, holds, holds on to the carbohydrates that we're trying to you know, get our extract from. That's our sugars. You needed the protein rest to break that open to further modify that malt and make those starches accessible. Nowadays, with highly modified malts, we don't need the pro- protein rest to do that. Um, and and, uh, and so, actually, now a protein rest can even be detrimental to beer quality. That's right, because uh, there's nothing else for it to act on except those head retention and uh, haze proteins. So um, it's you know maybe a short protein rest may be useful if you're trying to build fan into your wort. If you're using a lot of adjuncts like rice or corn that doesn't have much fan or much protein in it, um, then a short protein rest can help build that back up. But, uh, you know, it's like a blender. You, if you do it too long, you just make mush. And you end up with no head retention. That's right. Yeah, the, th- then, that you, then you come to like your, uh, your amylase enzymes or your, or your sacrification enzymes, the beta amylase, the alpha amylase, and the limit dextrinase. And uh, uh, as I was saying earlier, the, the beta amylase is denatured above 150F or 65C. And uh, it prefers the 140 to 150 range. So uh, then when we do a step mash, we'll do a rest like at 145 or 150C, uh, 150F for a period of time to make lots of maltose. But then we reach a limit and we need to ramp up into the region where that alpha amylase prefers, which is like uh, 140 to 167F or 60 to 75C. And uh, let that break break down those uh, large sugars and those large starches further. And uh, there's one other thing I wanted to touch on that in all of this enzyme activity, uh, the thing we're kind of forgetting is that you need to have the starches accessible to the enzymes. And the way you do that is they have to become uh, solubilized or gelatinized, as we call it. And each starch has its own gelatinization temperature. Now, barley gelatinizes between um, 140 and 150 degrees Fahrenheit, or 60 to 65 C. So if you think about it, when you're doing your beta amylase rest, maybe only 50% of your starches have become soluble at that point. And uh, so you're going to make you know, a lot of maltose with the starches that are available to the beta amylase, but there's still a proportion of those starches that aren't soluble yet. And that's why you need to ramp up to like 155, get above that starch gelatinization temperature range, complete the solubilization, and now all the enzymes can have access to the starches and really break them down. That's for barley, 140 to 150. Um, Wheat and rye and oats have lower gelatinization temperatures so and so does oats oats is like 127 to 138 f uh wheat is 136 to 147 f um corn and rice um it corn is 143 to 165 f so um when when you see recipes that call for corn it'll be like flake corn or Grits that they tell you to cook first before you add them to the mash, and that's because you need to you need to bring them above 165 F 
to complete that solubilization so that they'll, those starches will be accessible to the enzymes. Out of uh, rice. Out at UC Davis, uh, uh, when you brew in their pilot system, or at least the older pilot system that they had, um, part of your requirement uh, for making a brew was actually to convert some rice uh, into uh, its gelatinized state and then extract the sugars from it. Now, of course, that's because Anheuser-Busch pays for uh, uh, (laughs) most of that program. But every batch of beer involved uh, taking the uh, a little steam kettle, a little two or three gallon steam kettle that uh, you would you would actually gelatinize rice in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rice is a high, has a high, high has the highest temperature of the common grains. It's 154 to 172, so you really do got to cook that stuff first before you can try to use it in the mash. Yeah, and, and that, that's what they would do is they would cook it and then they'd put it in the mash. Mm-hmm. All right, so the. Uh, and the funny thing is, I have a uh, question about that very thing. And what we'll do is when we come back from this break, we'll uh, answer a couple more email questions, and we'll get in a live chat and uh, wrap this up right after this. Keep your carboy cap on. This is Bruce Strong. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sean O'Sullivan, the brewmaster and co-founder of the 21st Amendment Brewery and Restaurant in San Francisco. Six years ago, Nico Frecci and I opened the 21st Amendment on 2nd Street with the intent of bringing back the local neighborhood brew pub. Well, the neighborhood has really changed over the years, but the 21st Amendment still remains a great place for people to meet over a terrific meal and a tasty pint of beer. In the past, the only way you could enjoy the 21st Amendment's handcrafted beers was at the brew pub. Well, all that has changed. Now, the 21st Amendment beers are available in cans. That's right, cans. When was the last time you had a great beer in a can? Well, that day has come. We're offering our world-famous watermelon wheat and 21A IPA in cans. Cans are a better package than glass because cans keep the beer fresher longer, but you can also take cans to places where bottles can't go, like the beach, lake, golf courses, and sporting events. So join us in the revolution to take back the can from the big breweries and crack open a cold 21A craft beer in a can. The 21st Amendment, 563 2nd Street in San Francisco, just two blocks from Giant Park. Williams Brewing is your online resource for prompt delivery of quality home brewing supplies. Since 1979, Williams Brewing has offered the finest equipment and freshest ingredients and the best customer service in the business. Cut hours off your brewing sessions by using one of their 11 varieties of famous Williams malt extract. Their Williams German Pills is mashed with pure German Moravian two-row barley malt for a light blonde color and malty crispness you just can't get from other extracts. Or check out their unique fermenters, draft beer equipment, bottling aids, and more. They even have their own line of precision hydrometers. Go to williamsbrewing.com to browse their vast selection and enter promo code BREW at the order checkout for $5 off your next order over $50. Orders placed by 3 p.m. ship the same day. Again, go to williamsbrewing.com and enter promo code BREW at checkout for $5 off your next order. Brewing is easy the Williams way. Live. Beer Radio. The Brewing Network. The Brewcasters. 
If you're just starting, don't be discouraged by all this stuff. It's exactly. so easy. Just throw it yeah. together. Put yeah. some sugar and some water and some yeast in there. Yeah. Network. <laughs> <laughs> Like the Lance Armstrong of the beer world. Except for that nut thing. This is Bruce Strong. Okay, we're talking enzymes here with my, my good friends, uh, John Palmer, Colin Kaminsky, and Tasty McDole. Well, Michael Tasty McDole. What? What? I have a new name? Mike. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. See, My but I, I call him Tasty all the time, so yeah. I've gotten so used to it that I just say Tasty. Yeah, well, I think it's one of the coolest nicknames we have. Uh, Jim had uh, emailed us and he said, I listen to the MP3 of the Jamel Show on the Classic American Pilsner. The Jamel Show can be listened to on the uh, Brewery Network. It airs uh, every other Monday opposite the, uh, the Brew Strong Show. If you haven't uh, checked that out, it's where we cover all sorts of different styles and uh, get into a lot of details. That's a great show, too. Uh, of course, cause, you know, well, all right, well, I won't get into that. In the bit where uh, you dis- you're discussing the cereal mashing of the polenta, I understand understood you say that you're taking polenta, adding water, heat on, on a mash schedule. Don't you have to add some six-row or something with enzymes to convert the starch in the corn to fermentables? Otherwise, you're just gelling the polenta as opposed to converting starches. Can't you just go to a boil and not worry about the step temperatures? Uh, yeah, essentially, I, I think there was a little miscommunication there. You have to boil boil the snot out of it to break up the uh, the starches, right? Get those accessible to the, to the enzymes. Yeah. And then you add it back to your mash where all those enzymes are at. And I don't quite understand the whole the whole part of throwing some grain in with your your cereal mash I but do. i know that's the uh, john does there you go <laughs> yeah you can you can get uh that starch broken down by a combination of enzymes and heat or heat alone in a professional brewery setting where they're well, like in budweiser or miller where they're making you know trying to boil the snot out of you know hundreds of pounds hundreds of pounds of uh of corn or rice, um, it saves energy to use some enzyme activity there as well, because it breaks down sooner. You don't have to boil it as long. So, so the, uh, the but the but the enzymes in the grain, you know, once you get well, past yeah, uh, you know, right. 170 you degrees, don't you, don't you end the, up uh, denaturing denaturing the enzymes once you get past a certain temperature? So once you're you're boiling, anyways, it's like uh, useless, right? Right, but but you you, you yeah, take they don't it up bring slowly. Up you, you do what's yeah. called a cereal mash, mm-hmm. where you you start out at a at a, a beta amylase kind of rest with some with your polenta and your enzymes in there, and the enzymes the barley enzymes will work on the surface of the starches and start breaking them down, and so mm-hmm. you'll take it through that mash regime, and you can get half of it. Uh, Throwing out a number, you can get half of it broken down and solubilized before you go through the boil. And they're actually um, running it up to temp as fast as they can. It's just there's enough time; it takes that long to do it that mm-hmm. that the enzymes have some time to be active. Well, Colin, you've you've you've, you've uh, hung around uh, these these types of brewers that use these uh, adjuncts. And uh, any other any other thoughts on uh, when you're using these adjuncts and, and doing these cereal masses? Mash. Boy, I buy it all pre-gelatinized. I buy it flaked. 
because mm-hmm. it's so much easier just to buy it flaked. It doesn't cost you know cost pennies more per pound, the, which doesn't make any difference to you or me. The process of going through the rollers, it's it's high temp and it's slightly moist and it gelatinizes when it goes through the rollers and makes those flakes, so it's ready to, it's, to add right to your mash. And it has a huge amount of surface area, so mm-hmm. the enzymes go right after it. Yeah, you yeah. don't need to run it through your mill or anything. You just throw no. it in there. I run I, it through I, the mill anyways. But. I, I do because my mill is upstairs, and that mm-hmm. means it saves me from throwing it on my back and carrying mm-hmm. it downstairs. Well, and it mixes it throughout, and you know, instead of just piling it on top. And. Yeah, the, the only thing I don't run through my uh, uh, mill anymore is... Uh, Small kittens? Yeah, uh, well, I, I, I try to stop that, but you know, the thrill of it is just so exciting. <laughs> um, it's, it's the screams that really, really work the, for you, right? The, uh, uh, the powders that, that you might uh, use in a brewery, um, I don't run through the mill because they end up sticking in the, in the grain, you know, in the flue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I use dextrose, I use uh, maltodextrin, um, uh, uh, both to change uh, fermentability aspects of the beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and those don't go through the mill. Everything else that comes out of the grain room goes through the mill, though. Dark malts, flaked, I don't care. Well, John, I, I got one here uh, uh, from Fred, and he said uh, there was a post in the, the More Beer Forum, uh, supposedly quoting John Palmer, that suggested that setting the hot liquor tank high enough to raise or maintain the mash temperatures. This is on a on a system with a a Herms or a Rims system where it recirculates okay. the the liquid from the mash through a coil and uh, and heats it up to maintain the temperature of the mash or to to do a step mash uh, to 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 raise it. He said that uh, uh, the temperatures would denature the enzymes that you were trying to utilize. On my system, I have set the hot liquor tank 10 to 11 degrees Fahrenheit above the desired mash temperature to keep the temp up during the rest, i.e. 163 on his hot liquor temp to get 153 stable Fahrenheit in his mash. Is this messing up the rests? Uh, it could, you know, you know, just logically. I mean, if you if you think about... You know, you're you're taking the words and you're, with its contains your enzymes and heating it up above your mash temperature. Yeah, you could be denaturing your beta amylase, but you know when you think about okay, you're only heating up a portion of the wort. You have the rest of the enzymes in the mash. Um, you're gradually heating up the rest of the mash uh, with this you know with this recirculation. Um, most of your enzymes will be preserved, but it's and so you know. In response to that, or as part of that um, suggestion, what I advocate is you know monitoring the outflow temperature of the wort out of the herms, so you know, you can see how hot that wort got while it was in going you know going through the coils in the hot liquor tank, and uh, you know if you see that 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 wort exiting your hot liquor tank is 175, 180 degrees, you know if if your hot liquor tank is that hot, you know that's that's probably uh, defeating the purpose because you are probably denaturing more enzymes uh, or denaturing the enzymes as fast as you're heating your mash. But if it's something like if you've set it to 165 or 170, and your the word exiting the Herms coil is maybe at 160, well, it's not that it's not that high. You've denatured a portion of the enzymes, and then that's feeding back into the main mash and cooling down again to like 150. Uh, and so as the whole mash gradually comes up to this set temperature, uh, you've preserved a lot of your enzyme potential. 
You know, when I built a Herm system, uh, uh, what I did was I actually took that output temperature and used it to set my hot liquor burner. So if I wanted that, if my next step was 150F, then what I would do was put my thermal probe on the output of the wart coming out of the Herms, and I would turn the burner on until my wart was coming out of the Herms at 150F, and when it was, the burner would shut off. Yeah, and and that that was how I I dealt with all of that, and it actually dealt with both issues at once, and it was actually really controllable. Yeah, that's how I'm building my rims system. I'm building a, a rims that uses a direct fired mash tun, and I'm drawing the wort um, out from under the false bottom there in the mash tun, and uh, recirculating it on top of the mash, and uh, but my temperature controller. Is that controls the flame is looking at that exit temperature of the wort coming out of out from under the false bottom, so I'm never going to exceed my set temperature. It's just going to circulate until the whole um, whole mash and the wort it's seen is, it exceeds that set temperature, and then it'll shut off. The, you know, the only problem I've ever seen with uh, direct fire on a mash tun is if whatever feet hold the screen up trap grain underneath it. It scorches. Oh, yeah. Um, and as long as you've taken care of that, like hold it onto the sides of the wall, uh, heating up the mash tun's a really fun thing to play with. Yeah, that's the way I've been doing it. All right. Uh, Bill wrote in, and, and uh, if you listen to either the podcast or live, uh, you can email us at brewstrong at thebrewingnetwork.com. And, and that way you can get your questions answered on the air uh, just like uh, Bill did, and uh, you know John and I and uh, and uh, the rest of the crew will will dig into your uh, questions and and give you some uh, detailed answers. In this case, Bill was asking, "I want to brew an extract version of your Scottish sixty shilling recipe." Uh, again, that recipe would be from Brewing Classic Styles. Have you written a book? <laughs> Maybe I should bring some of my emails in. Uh, I don't have a book. And they're much in more Jamel, varied. And, and, and they'll uh, say, in Jamel's book. Yeah. Uh, according to Fred Bonjour's website, uh, Fred has a great website with a lot of awards. Uh, yeah, I have a recipe there, yes. Yeah, you may want to check that out. <laughs> <laughs> If you're tired of those 80 award-winning recipes, I, I think, there I think, are a few other award-winning recipes. We're not going to call you Tasty anymore. I think we're going to call you Testy. <laughs> testy <laughs> McDowell. Well, there I, was something about this show being testicle-oriented. I yes. I can say, okay, wait, wait. I've got, again, completely off the rails. Oh, okay. You know, I, I, I can swear to God right here, right now, <laughs> Jamil only has one testicle. The The advertisement is wrong. Yes. <laughs> I don't know where is where this is going here. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, that nut thing. Uh, I can substitute the pale malt with extract. Uh, I want to brew it. I got to read this again. Yeah, I want to brew an extract version of Scottish sixty shilling recipe. According to Fred Bunger's web sh- website, I can substitute pale malt with extract. Given the remaining grains, Munich especially, I believe that a partial mash will be required. Can I simply do a partial mash with the remaining grains, Munich, honey, crystal 40, crystal 120, and chocolate? Or do I need to throw in some pale malt to provide enzymes for conversion? Who wants to tackle that one? I will. Um, the diastatic power, that is the measure of the how much am- am- amylase enzyme is in the malt, uh, for Munich malt, it's only about 40 compared to uh, 
two rows, um, 130, 120, 130 for diastatic power. For a U.S. So, two row. Pardon? For a U.S. two row. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Europeans can be much can lower. Be higher. Yeah. I actually mine the one I get is sixty to eighty, so it's oh, much okay. lower. Yeah. What do you say, European? What are you saying? Uh, I, I use European uh, two row or Pilsner? European two row. Okay. Yeah. I, I use uh, crisp Maris Otter. And okay, yeah. Uh, well, that's, it's very low. Is that that's a pale ale malt, right? Yeah, it's a little it's a little heavier than the crisp pale malt. Okay. It's a little darker. Yeah. The 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 kilning that those malts go through denatures some of the enzymes. So yes, yeah, six to eighty is about right for for a pale ale malt or for a for this two row the crisp and uh, the I, nobody I guess no one publishes you know what the minimum amount of enzymes you need in the mash is for full conversion, but they do say that uh, a Munich malt at forty will convert itself, but, but not in the edge of time. Right, it, it can't convert the other things. Right, the, you wouldn't dark, you would want to put rice in with all Munich malt. So things right. like uh, Munich malt, Vienna malt, aromatic. Uh, you could you could take a hundred percent aromatic malt. It'll self convert. Make a mash out of that and see what a hundred percent aromatic malt beer would taste like. Yuck! But uh, <laughs> but uh, the thing is that the darker kiln the malt is, the more the enzymes have been denatured and the less. Uh, ability to self-convert or convert other grains would be. And I guess we're getting towards that, this really important point. In, right? Yeah, we're getting to this really important point backwards. And what's really important is is uh, what John's saying, and that is there is a measure of how much amylase is left in the malt. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you can look it up on your malt analysis. Um, I assume that somewhere around 30, 35, uh, if I average all my malts together by their weight, um, that I'm going to start running into issues, mm-hmm. and that as long as I'm somewhere in there, uh, that I'm going to convert just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but you start, I don't ever add extracts. So if you start out with a bunch of extracts and then you go dilute all your enzymes, I don't know how that mm-hmm. behaves at all. And, yeah, and that's kind of what this question is. You would have to asking. add up the total weight of you know the, the, the starches or whatever, you know, the sugars in the mash, and then divide... That by the diastatic power of the you know the of the proportion of the malt you have exactly and as long as you're above like thirty uh, thirty to fifty you're probably okay um, as long you as know. you don't overheat something and denature something on accident th- or I, yeah I, right I think yeah, you start getting uh, down into those low numbers you have to start being careful I think Testy might might be uh, going to say the same thing I was going to say what, what were you going to say Well I had a, actually had a question and have a statement. Uh, is, is like the diastatic power of uh, like two rows one thing? Say so you say 120, 130. What would like say German Pilsner be? And I guess it's a related question is: Do they fill in the the gaps left in, in each other? That is, would the two together provide maybe a higher? Uh, if you had fifty percent Pilsner malt and you had fifty percent um, yeah. corn, uh-huh. then effectively you have half of that one hundred and thirty. So you'd have a you'd have a diastatic power of the group of like sixty five. The the only Pilsner malt I use is Durst Turbo Pils, and it runs about eighty DP. So it's less. All right. So here's here's the thing that that I note on this. And again, I'm just a practical guy, right? And uh, what I yeah, what you I have no is, theory at all, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I what I noticed from this question is he's talking about chocolate crystal one twenty crystal forty. 
Now, those things don't need to be converted. You can actually get, there's some conversion that can happen, but, but generally you could just go ahead and steep those, and you don't have to worry about conversion. You'll be just fine. Right. They're not going to throw a star chase. Right. There's, there's very minimal starch that, that you need to worry about in those. Those have already been, uh, you know, beat uh, to death, mashed, and, and, and uh, the, the sugar's been crystallized or it's been, uh, you know, they've burnt been, to a been, crisp. They've been gelatinized. So don't even worry about those. Those, those, those have uh, really no effect on it. The honey malt now, that, that needs to be converted. That hasn't been uh, uh, really converted uh, like the crystal malts. The, those get converted at the mash, at the uh, at the maltster. They convert those for you, and you just need to rinse out those sugars. Essentially, honey malt hasn't had that conversion happen. The Munich malt hasn't happened had that conversion. In that recipe, I know there's very little honey malt. And I know that uh, you know there's enough Munich in there. I think you'd be okay with that. I think that the Munich it may take a little while to, to get conversion, but that Munich and that honey malt will will go ahead and convert. And there are other grains you don't really need to worry about. Well, and you know, the, I mean, the, big, the what's the big risk if you don't convert it all? And right. that and that's going to be Starches. you know, yeah, that you're going to have a starch haze, right? And you know, a little a, lower gravity. A little lower gravity. You're going to have a starch haze. Yep. You can't find out a starch haze. Mm-hmm. Um, you could filter it out, but mm-hmm. it clogs filters. Right. So you know, if you end up with a, a haze that you just can't get rid of, mm-hmm. then maybe think about trying to convert them. Right. Um, but if not, then don't worry about it because you're just trying to extract flavors. Right. And and you know, and the, and the the point I want to emphasize is that you know, look at the the total grains that you have, and some of them you don't have to worry about converting them. Uh, you know, they're you know they're uh, you know black malt. Is uh, beyond all. conversion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, well, you know, something like carafa—they actually uh, mash, convert, and uh, ferment, and it gives like a quarter of one percent of alcohol. And then they boil it again to drive off the alcohol for the uh, for the cinnamar uh, coloring extract. And they actually have to mash it and convert it and all that, so it becomes beer. So they can actually, under the Rhein Heitzgebot, uh, add that back to the beer. So, uh, do they have so to the, pay tax on that too? I bet you they do. But you know, so there is some little starch that can that can be done in there. But um, really, you know, look at those types of grains and the really dark ones, the ones that are crystal malts, crystallized. You, you can ignore, and then some of them will have the ability to self-convert, and those will probably be okay. If, but, if you chew it and it tastes like food, then you probably need to convert it. And if you chew it and it doesn't taste like food, then it probably is past conversion. Oh, yeah? yeah that's interesting. You know, I, I chew malts every day. I, you know, just grab a handful out of a bag and go, oh, what's, what this, what's C-17 taste like today? And, uh, and you know, it would never what's hurt to, to throw... Uh, uh, crystal uh, malt. It would never hurt, it never hurt to throw in, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, pale malt. Because, uh, you know, you're essentially adding just some en- more enzymes and some more starches that can be converted... And uh, you're pretty much guaranteed at that point, uh, you know, of, of yeah. getting your conversion there. Well, and and, right. and one of the things I think that's uh, uh, really fun to play with is how long does this conversion take? You know, we talk about mashing for an hour, but if you really do want to push the limits of it, the most of the conversion takes place much more quickly, and and you know, you probably have ninety percent conversion in ten minutes in an all malt mash. In an all malt mash, yeah. Uh, yeah, if you if you have a portion of adjuncts that you know, are non enzymatic, then it takes cut, longer, right? Right, because it takes a while for the enzymes to find all those starch molecules. Mm-hmm. Great. All right, what we're going to do? We're going to take another short break, and when we come back, we'll we'll turn to the questions from the live chat room and uh, answer some of those, and probably give ourselves a little wrap up here. Do our final runnings. Back after this. 
smart. Bruce Strong. This is Bruce Strong. Hey, Push, the new brewery's looking good. Thanks, Finn. Piece by piece. Well, let's fire her up. Whoa! Is that a new kettle? Yeah, just got it brand new, but paid half price. What? And that blade scale? 40% off. And the new tap handle? Five bucks instead of 13. Got a new regulator for the brew stand, too, but five bucks instead of 25. Dude, where are you stealing all this stuff from? Where else? The more beer deal of the day. Announcing the Beer, Beer, and More Beer Deal of the Day. Every day, a new fantastic deal from big items to small that will blow you away. Boil kettles, carboy carriers, sterile siphon starters, digital timers. Watch morebeer.com every day for a new deal, and you just might find the item you've been waiting for at a price you cannot believe. Hurry, because stock is limited on most items. And that sweet Guinness cap, let me guess. The The More Beer beer Deal deal of the day. Day. Yeah, I knew it. Come on, let's brew something. Find the more beer deal of the day at morebeer.com. Celebrity voices impersonated. Attention homebrew shop owners. At Fermentap, they know you're tired of buying the same old gear that everyone else has. That's why Fermentap offers the newest and most cutting-edge brewing equipment known to man. Since 1998, Fermentap has been leading the fight against the boring and mundane by offering strange, unique, and just plain smart equipment. Like their stainless stone false bottoms. Never deal with the floating plastic castle of other false bottoms again. And since they're made from stainless steel, they'll last a lifetime. Fermentap's line of copper wort chillers are the best on the market. Designed to cool your wort faster and more efficiently than other immersion tailors. They actually invented the equipment to make these tailors not only work great, but look great too. How about a fantastic line of ingredients including vanilla beans, sorghum extract, blue agave extract, hot bitterness extract, unique wine yeast, green coffee beans, sake kits, all stuff you can't find anywhere else. Fermentap carries all the standard products and equipment you need as well, such as all grain systems, stainless hardware, kettles, carbonation stones, you name it, they've got it. Fermentap's entire line of products has been helping retail shops meet the demands of their customers for nearly 10 years, and they want to help you too. For more information, see them on the web at Fermentap.com or call Jason at 1-800-942-2750. Fermentap, better beer through innovation. You're listening to the Brewing Network. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. We're back. I'm here with uh, Testy, Colin, John, and myself, Jamel. Oh, Justin. You got to be kidding me, John Palmer. (laughs) What are you doing back there? I will hang up on you. I don't care if you're the host of this show. He's, Sorry. He's, he's, a, he's a troublemaker. <laughs> he's a troublemaker. <laughs> he, tries, he tries to pretend to be, oh, I'm this nice guy. I'm real, uh, yeah. real uh, you know, well-behaved and intelligent. And, and he's got Laffy Taffy in his mouth as he comes <laughs> yeah, back on the air. Yeah. No, no, it was a pretzel. Uh, a good beer pretzel. I oughta. Yeah. 
<sighs> you know, that, 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 that just didn't fly. That just, just doesn't fly around here. So I, I, I'm sitting at this convention on hops up in uh, Oregon, and this guy I don't know sits down next to me. And we're sitting going through, you know, a few lectures, and finally he looks over at me and he says, do you understand anything about what they're saying? And I said, I'm as lost as you. And But shut up, because I'm, I'm hoping that they give me something I can understand. <laughs> and it turns out it was John. And we were both <laughs> lost in this lecture. We were just just, just, just so far over our heads. I, I, uh, cannot... I, love, I love the part where the guy had the big molecule model up there. And he was, yeah, you can turn it this way, and you can see that that's something. Yeah, right. And, 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 yeah. and, and expected everybody to go, oh, I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god these guys are over our heads i you know phd in molecular biology and they'd still be over your heads you know it's yeah. just oh it was, I, I, that was i'm glad great you conference but I, it was a great conference you know they haven't issued the proceedings yet though i know i've been i've been waiting for those i should call i've actually uh contacted uh, uh tom shellhammer about it oh, and what do you say um that they should be out before the end of the year what the hell? You guys done chatting? You know, there's this thing called the telephone you can use. You know, we're we're you know we're using up a uh, listener time. Here. Hey, we're we're bored with your enzyme show. Okay, <laughs> we're bored with we're bored with all the Justin. Jokes. I think this combination of hosts is never going to work in the future. Never. I think, uh, I think, too rowdy. Yeah. Two two hour shows. Too much brains in the room, yeah. and then it gets rowdy on top of that. Yeah, I need to stick with my own dim-witted comments. And uh, yeah, one dim-wit's plenty. Yeah. <laughs> We're filling it up here. All right, all right. So, so we've been talking about enzymes. So, you know, we started out. You know, what is an enzyme? Uh, you know, where you find them, how they're accessed, all, all the different kinds that are they're available, what they do, and how important they are to the brewing process. Now, even the, the extract brewers out there, don't forget that enzymes play a big part in the extracts you're getting. So the 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 brewery, and there is a brewery that produces these malt extracts for you. You know, some some really excellent. Malt extracts, they're, they're fantastic. No no reason not to use malt extracts. But one of the things that happens is that, that fermentability is kind of predefined for you. And that's predefined by the enzymes and the temperatures that were used at the at the extract producer. So uh, you, you you might find one extract that is more fermentable, one that is less, and that's because of the role that the enzymes played in converting the starches and the grains into the sugars, the same way that an all-grain brewer does but of course, you know we can add enzymes later if we want right. to change that. You know, so, you know, Bino. Bino. Yeah, yeah, my my daughter, you know, bought me a jar of Bino at the grocery store. Dad, I got you something. <laughs> Is this she a hint? Yeah, I know. She's like, it controls the farting. I like how. Oh, thanks. Hey. thanks. What's Appreciate nice about it. having all sons is you know they don't care if you fart at all. They, they, they think it's funny. <laughs> yeah. When you got daughters, hey, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, they worry about me farting. Yes. I, I don't quite understand that. My two-year-old daughter thinks it's funny when I fart. So. <laughs> Can you play play a tune? <laughs> no, I can't. Well, I, you know, I, I can't do the Star Spangled Banner or anything. You know. <laughs> what kind of father are you? Uh, all right, so so uh, uh, Bino, you, uh, you can add enzymes right to your to your extract, like like Bino, or or to your fermentation. Or your fermentation. Uh, sure. it, the the thing that I always recommend is adding them, uh, you know, prior to the boil, 
and you can kind of, you know, allow that to break down the sugars further, and then boil, you denature the enzymes, and, and then stop you fix working. it. Right. right. If you add it to your fermenter, it's going to go all, all the way, way the down, end. and it's going to be real dry and thin. So, But if, if you're looking you're for Bud Light, yeah, then that might exactly. be a good choice. A, a light beer. Well, uh, if you're uh, going, you're making a big barley wine, and you haven't had much luck getting it to ferment down where you want it, you could be proactive mm-hmm. in that way, too. Right. Yeah. And uh, so that's something that the extract brewer can do. Uh, Bino tablets. There are commercial enzymes for brewers, right, Colin? Yeah, I, I use uh, I use them once in a while. Um, it, it's like the deep dark secret. It's like oh, I'm frustrated with the fermentation of a triple IPA or something, uh-huh. and uh, so I sneak some enzymes out of the cellar and don't tell anybody. So, you know. what are these enzymes? Where do you buy them? Can the the average uh, amateur brewer buy them? You know that you can't yet. But everything that that I've had available to me in the brewery has been available to the amateur eventually. So I'm sure now that they're broken down, they used to be only you know you buy 55 gallon drum of enzymes, mm-hmm. and now they're now I can buy a liter, which mm-hmm. is a more usable s- s- amount for me. And soon you'll be able to buy 20 milliliters, which will be a more usable amount for a home brewer. Mm-hmm. So as as these things you know break down from big industry into into my world, they'll continue to break down into the home brewing world. And and the two I use um, uh, work in the fermenter, so they work at at uh, seventy degrees Fahrenheit really well. And there's no danger of uh, them going too far. Yeah, how do, certainly. How do, how do you get them to stop? You don't. You just let them run all the way to the end. <laughs> well, you could you could measure your gravity and then and crash it when you get to where you want to be, right? No, because no. They'll, they'll they'll leave them work at my. At oh, 40. even at forty. Yeah. <laughs> so extended so, yeah. logging would be a big problem. Yeah, right. You know, if you if you you know you can bottle condition without adding any more sugar or yeast. Yeah, right. yeah. Right. Gotcha. So you can't kill them once they're in there. They're no, once they're, they're in there, they go all the way to the till there's uh, everything's gone. Right. Yeah. And I've heard that about the Beano, of course. Yeah, you got. It. Well, but you know what, though? There's some fun, you know, you can add uh, uh, other things that they can't eat. And, oh. uh, you know, maltodextrin you can throw in there. Gotcha. And, uh, and, and so you can still have some body and mm-hmm. end up with a real dry beer. I mean, it's, you know, it's fun to make a double IPA that starts at, say, 1090 um, and finishes at, at 1004 <laughs> um, and still has, has head retention, uh, body, and sweetness. Well, and we were talking and about that, that earlier before the show. We were talking about how, you know, how, how far a, a beer attenuates. The, the finishing gravity actually, it, it, it has some play in sweetness, but not all play in sweetness. So you can have a beer that finishes a little, little uh, lower finishing gravity. Uh, Tasty was, uh, he had one beer that finished at 1010. He had the same wort that finished at 1011. And the one that finished at 1011, I believe everyone identified as being drier. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's, there's the body component and there's the sweetness component. And that's why you can get a, a Belgian triple that finishes in the single digits yet has a real sweetness to it up front and finishes very dry. Well, and, and, uh, and, and then there's also something that's going on with hops that, that you and I have talked about. Mm-hmm. And there, there seem, if you add hops uh, uh, late in fermentation, you seem to be able to make uh, esters that have a perceived sweetness, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, fruity, fruity kind of sweetness. Right. Um, and they don't, they don't tend to affect the gravity. So you can end up with these low gravities and this strong perceived fruity sweetness mm-hmm. um, simply by dry hopping late in fermentation. Yep. But the yeast has to be active, and you have to have hops in in, in contact with the yeast. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fascinating, very complex you know system of things. I don't think any listener should let that frighten them. You know, experiment away and and you know try try some of these things, and uh, 
you know, it's okay. It, it, it'll work out. Don't worry. You know, we're, maybe we're getting a little little technical on some things, but uh, the general takeaway is that you know all this stuff will work. If you're all grain brewer, you just get it wet and get it in the right temperature. Even if you're partial mashing, get it wet, get it in the right temperature. <laughs> it's 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 going to be okay. Uh, you know, well, that's the other thing that you know one of the one of the things that we've done in these two shows is we, what we're doing is we're we're setting the the toys in the playground. This is a vast playground of things that we all get to enjoy, and w- what we're doing is saying the swing sets over there and the slides over here, and you don't have to play with them if you don't want to, but if you want to, they're there to play with. And 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 I think that's an important thing to remember. There's a lot to learn. I've, you know, I've done more than 600 batches at Downtown Joe's, and I still learn things every day from my batches. So, and we'll be hanging out in the in the shrubs, watching you play on the playground, and uh, you know. Well, that's because you're a pedophile. But <laughs> oh, that's, that, was just, that was just mean. That was just mean. Oh, now I'm mean. All right, so we we have uh, people listening live. If you if you've never listened live, go to thebrewingnetwork.com. Click on that chat now button, and uh, you can participate live in the uh, the chat as uh, as it happens. Uh, what do we got going on uh, today, Justin? A lot of things happening in the chat. I want to give my personal thanks to Colin for coming in here and messing with Jamil a little bit. I like it. <laughs> Slapping him around. <laughs> last time Colin shows up. <laughs> really added a lot to the discussion. <laughs> yeah. He did. He did do that. Yes. I like Colin the the way he's able to uh, to bring it down to us homebrewers too. I, I really like your last statement about you know we're just we're talking about these things. You can use them. You can not. Your beer's going to be okay. But here they are, you know, if you want to mess with them. I think that's important for people to remember. So for me, as the, the amateur in the room, I just like hearing you say that. I did have some questions from the chat room. A lot of people hanging out tonight. Um, we've talked about how a lot of the enzyme conversion happens in the first 15 or so minutes of your mash. So how much actually happens after the first 15 or 20 minutes, somebody asked. Everything that didn't get wet in the beginning. So you look at efficiency when you're starting. When you're looking at that last 40 minutes, it's you had that dry clump that didn't quite get stirred in really well, mm-hmm. and it starts to get hydrated, and it starts to, to, to be affected. And so you start looking at your efficiency, and the longer you mash, the more efficient you get, but each minute is diminishing returns. You know, okay. So I'm running now. I run uh, 60 minutes, uh, and I recirculate the whole time. Um, and I don't think I can get any more efficiency out of my system. Uh, I'd have to change my equipment to get more efficiency. So if um, it's in contact with that hot water, it's 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 done. You're saying that it's everything that was not in contact in the first 15 minutes. That's what I think. Yeah, when you when you do the uh, Congress warts at uh, in you're in the college class and you make a Congress wart, it's a one liter mash um, in ten minutes at fifteen minutes, it's all done. Okay. Well, and there's some grains out there where when they do those Congress mash, uh, it converts in under a minute. It's done. It's you know it's it's pretty much yeah. as soon as the the grain hits the water, it's converted. There's a lot of factors. There's the diastatic power of the malt. There's the modification of the malt. Um, and, you know, there's the, the grist ratio. Um, and as, as Colin and Jamil are saying, you know, in the co- Congress mash is one thing. In someone's brew system, it's another thing. Uh, and one reason, one reason we can recommend an hour as a kind of a, b- a baseline time is because we're trying to make sure that they, there's some cushion there, that there's enough time for that mash to convert. 
I've I've done mashes that have been you know have adjuncts in them. I've done them uh, with uh, pale malt, which has lower diastatic power than say two row. And uh, I I've had you know mashes that I can tell through you know, through iodine tests and cloudiness and so on and smell. They're just not done after an hour. You got to stir, heat them up a little more, keep going, let them let them go. Um, the I, th- I think I think homebrewers need to understand that when when they hear somebody saying, "Oh, a mash converts in 15 minutes," that that's an ideal situation. That's a laboratory mash, and there's probably factors going on there that they're not aware of. Absolutely, you know. And, and, but you know, and I guess what what when I when I suggested it, that's one of the things I'm just trying to remind people is these enzymes are really active. And and it takes the skill and experience of the brewer to do exactly what you did. You you checked the clarity, you smelled the mash, and and you you likely even tasted it, and you yeah. came to a conclusion: this mash isn't complete. And that that's something that that in a brewery you do just as a matter of course. And you might look at it after forty five minutes and say, you know what, this one's done. I'm not wasting fifteen minutes of my day. Or you might you might look at it after an hour and go, you know what? I'm going to go uh, have a cup of coffee with the cute girl down the street because uh, this one needs more time. All right, I have another one uh, from another home brewer about uh, mash temperatures and and the time it takes. This home brewer is targeting, let's say, 152 Fahrenheit mash temperature. He says, after I add my strike water, I find that the mash is actually 156. So I add cold water to bring it down to 152. But it takes about 15 minutes to get there. So he wants to know, what's happened to my lower temperature enzymes? Are they dead? Did I kill them? Is it too late? No, there's still a good portion of those left. The whole denaturing uh, thing is, you, you got to remember, this isn't like electricity. Um, where you flip it on, flip it off. This is these are, uh, you know, organic organisms. They're not. They're not organisms. They're not. They're not alive. But th- these are natural processes, and so they happen by by half lives. And you know, the reaction has a has a peak and then it tapers off. And uh, yeah, 156. It's it's too hot for beta, and so you will denature in 15 minutes. You know, uh, maybe 40% of your of your beta amylase, but there's still going to be a good portion left as it cools down. That's still going to be you know that won't denature because you've cooled it down. It'll it'll work fine. The other thing to know about enzymes is is the hotter they get, the closer they get to denaturing temperature, the faster they work. So you know they're being they're they're coming up. Um, on their denaturing temp, and they're starting to to be denatured, but at the same time, they're processing twice as much starch as they would if it were, you know, five or ten degrees cooler. The rule of thumb they gave us in school was: for every ten degrees Celsius, you doubled the speed of an enzyme. Well, here's a here's a practical brewing tip for the, for for everybody. If if you find yourself you, you mash in and, and uh, uh, you know you end up at one sixty five. Right, and you figure, oh, I've, you know, for and you don't notice it for 15 minutes, and you're like, oh my God, what did I do? Do I need to throw all this away? You don't. Get yourself another pound of uh, domestic two row or you know six row if you got it. Throw that in there. You know, you know, grind it up, throw it in there, 
or uh, you know uh, yeah. uh, millet, throw it in there, and then uh, you know stir it stir it around or recirculate. And there's going to be enough enzymes in there. It may take a little longer, but there'll be enough enzymes in there to fully convert that mash for you. You know, get the temperature down. Mm-hmm. Then add this in at, at whatever temperature it is you want. If you're concerned about it, uh, you toss that in there, and I guarantee you it'll it'll convert everything. It may take some time. It may take a little bit of stirring. If if you got like let's say you got a uh, 40 pounds of grain in there, and you got uh, you know a pound of uh, two row, eventually the enzymes will will make it happen. It's uh, again the enzymes don't get used up. They can keep on working, keep on working, and and, and, they and just once, need and contact once the, with everything. Once the word is clear, it's converted. Right. And, so, uh, and and that and that's your that's your final test. I mean, mm-hmm. you can do an iodine test, but you know what? If you can fill a pint glass with the wort and it's clear, then it's converted. So uh, you know that's you know don't freak out if that happens to you. Just make sure you have some some grain uh, uh, still still available to you that you can just uh, mill up and toss in there, and that will uh, resolve any problem you have with too high a mash temperature. All right, a couple more questions to get through. Uh, this might be a stump the chemist question for you guys. Uh, someone wants to know, he had heard that there's an enzyme that uh, helps the precursors to cl- to that clove phenol in Weizen's, which mm-hmm. I guess, though, is, is a yeast uh, thing. Anybody know about an enzyme that helps that happen? Have you guys heard about that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. You answer this one, though, Colin. I'm not an expert on wheat beers. Uh, I hate clove flavor, so if I knew of that <laughs> yeah. enzyme, I'd figure out how to denature it and get rid of it. Camille knows it. Yeah, I don't okay. know the name of it. Though. Oh, but you know what he's talking yes. about? And there is, and it's a malt enzyme? Uh, yeah, I guess it's something yeah. that, uh, you know, there's a certain uh, temperature rest that you do, and it uh, all these precursors that are considered, uh, you know, critical... And uh, you know, wheat has uh, more of these. I, I can't I can't think of what, what okay. it is right now. All right. Well, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I guess the beginning of all of this is uh, 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 phenols are really common in malt. So the fact that there's a way to get them to survive into the beer isn't surprising in any way, shape, or form. Well, and this, uh, you know, and, and some interaction with the yeast uh, that that well. converts them into right. the chemical. And yeast and uh, but you know, personally, I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, you know, I I think along with Colin, uh, do single infusion mashes on everything, wheat beers, everything, and you get plenty of the clove and all that, that other stuff. I, I only do single infusion, and I've done a lot of experiments as a home brewer with uh, uh, rests and 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 decoction and all of that. And and you know what? Single Not even infusion, worth the time. Nope. Uh, single infusion gives me a better beer in less time. And uh, was, why why am I wasting my time? Yep. The, the maltster has done his job so well. Um, why am I wasting my time trying to redo it? Yeah, don't forget that's that's part of the mashing process. Is what the maltster does. Actually, you're just con- kind of continuing the. Uh, the process with your mash. All right, uh, did you guys mention bulk enzymes in the in the program a bit earlier? Yeah, we did. We talked a little bit about it. What do they you look like? Someone wants to know what they look like. Is that a powder? Is it a big bag of powder? What are bulk enzymes? I've gotten it as a white liquid, and I've gotten it as a powder. Okay. I've gotten it both ways. All right. Let's be wanting to know that. He's pissed that I, I know, wasn't listening. No, I wouldn't. I, would, no, I, would, I just wouldn't. I, no. Uh-huh. It's it's more going off the railroad track. You're talking about white liquids, yeah. 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 white powders. Yeah. Yes. All right. And the last question, uh, and, and they're usually bacteria derived. I should mention. So oh, they're actually really? growing a bacteria to oh. extract these enzymes from it. Oh, I see. 
Okay. But they are from malt, or is they getting... No, no, they're oh. grown, they're, they're, they're actually ex- bacteria-derived. Well, like yeah. underwear-derived bacteria. Well, yeah, right, you know. They, so yeah. these are bu- good bugs, they don't sour the beer, they just eat the... Uh, well, the bacteria is long gone. All oh, they did was grow the bacteria in the lab and, then take and the extract enzymes. the enzyme away from gotcha. it. Yeah. All right, I've got one more on-top question, uh, on-topic question, and then I'm going to allow an slightly off-topic, one slightly off-topic question for the day. Uh, the last on-topic uh, about Bino, you guys are talking about adding that, uh, does pasteurization denature Bino, somebody had asked? Yes. It does, okay. There There's a certain temperature. It, well, there it, is yes a way no. to denature Bino. And the, pasteurization also, of beer, though, is yeah. really cold. Well, yeah, yeah. It depends on the temperature of pasteurization. Pasteurization can happen at low temperatures. It can happen at high temperatures. So if you get hot enough, yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. If you get it hot enough, so. But I don't depends. even. I don't know if Budweiser gets their beer hot enough. Yeah, probably not. You know, and they they flash pasteurize. Uh, they 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 have a big tunnel pasteurizer yeah. down here, yeah. um, and and they they actually put their beers in the bottle, um, seal the bottle, and then pasteurize the whole package. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Do the enzyme thing unless you know you were going to boil. I would do it before the boil. Unless you want dry, 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 super dry, dry beer. Yeah. yeah, you know if you're if you're looking for cure and light, yeah. then then you know put Bino in the fermenter. Make your own utopias. All right, we do like to keep things on topic, but this since enzymes have so much to do with mash temperature, I'll allow this last question for the day from the chat room. Uh, this person wants to know: Hey, tomorrow I'm going to try out his new uh, rims system. He says I want to do a Weizen. And he's going to use uh, the Weinstefan thirty sixty eight yeast. What temperature rests should I target? Is his question. Anybody want to tackle the rest, Palmer? Yeah, I've got one fifty two. One single rest. But yeah, one forty eight single infusion. <laughs> um, dang. I've got Schneider Weiss's uh, presentation here on their on their Weiss beer. Uh, I, I know he talked about it, but I don't think he That's wrote right. it down. We're not doing anything. You got time to look at it. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, go ahead. It's off topic anyway. Yeah. Um, we were actually going to uh, oh, oh, here uh, we go. Uh, strip Jamil and figure out what color his underwear were yeah. while you were waiting. So none. I go okay. commando all the time. <laughs> none more for color. A, oh, for it's a good we didn't look. Phenolic through. note. Okay. You do a rest at a hundred and about a hundred and thirteen F for a little over ten minutes. So, so I'd call that an acid rest, right? Yeah, 113 F for about 10 minutes. Uh, it's like a isn't it the peruvic acid or something that is the the thing for yeah. the uh, for for uh, wheat beers and the clove and all that. Something mm-hmm. like that. As as you go long, acid rest or something. You start know. accentuating the. Well, so you drop the esters. I mean, you say you you guys are sitting there. Somebody, you know, Google. Get the get, come on. Uh, let's get the answer to this. <laughs> I had somebody want to know. I tried to look it up. So that's it. Just that one rest is the one that. Uh, that's the only. That's the only one he mentions. Okay. I assume. I, you, I think they do like one thirteen. They'll do a, like a one twenty something or one thirty. It's uh, they don't they do the uh, you know thirty forty fifty type of thing centigrade. That could be. I don't know. So and you know the, I can't the, find it here on this sheet. The traditional German rests are. 20, 30, 40, 50, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. 60, or yeah. 30, 30, and then they, they <laughs> drop the, the 20, I think, and so it's like um, 30, 30, 30, 40, 50, 60. Okay. C. All right. Or, and then, and then you know, uh, maybe for wheat beers, they, they do the 20. So 20, 30, 40, 50. And, and again, 
you would think, oh, all right, so there's like some you know, some magic about because when when you're looking at these numbers in Fahrenheit, you're thinking it's like you know one fifty one thirteen, yeah, one twenty one and a half, and you're thinking, oh, there must be some real science behind this. It's like no, the guys were like looking at their thermometer, going, okay, well we'll do a twenty, we'll do a thirty, we'll do a forty, we'll do a 50. it's like we would do, you know, we'd call it like oh one twenty, one thirty. So there's, I, I don't think there's a whole lot of magic in there like they. Determine the the barley the barley tech. whisperer type of you know thing. That's nonsense, and you know don't romanticize that. Well, the it's mas- just like yeah, it was convenient the, as to what the thermometer read, the, and they uh, could well, remember. And the times are kind of important too, though. You know, right. you wouldn't want to go you know stopping at thirty uh, C for two hours. Right, yeah, that, exactly. that would make it's, a really bad beer. You go through just a few minutes on each, like ten minutes, fifteen minutes, and and that's the other thing. You know, it's not. Uh, you know, six minutes and thirty-two seconds. It's slow. Oh, we'll do ten minutes on this and fifteen minutes on that. And it's again, it's a general ball- ballpark. It is not some magical, mystical thing that you know people are like. Oh no, you got to do this in order to make a, a good wheat beer or a good, you know, or you got to decoction mash. That's all just not true. It's it's not, uh, you know, the 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 simple single infusion nowadays will will get you pretty much everything you need to do. if you want to do all that other stuff that's great it can be entertaining it can be fun but uh, you know there's not something very uh, you know uh, you know that was figured out they didn't set the measure uh, of Celsius uh, of based Celsius on brewing. based on brewing <laughs> they they just kind of winged their brewing based on you know remembering instead of having to remember it was twelve you know or twenty one Celsius <laughs> it was twenty and they just kind of you know hit these these round numbers so and, and you know another really important thing to keep in mind is, is something that uh, I learned the first day i was brewing with brian hunt and uh he said you know all we do is make food for yeast it's yeast that makes beer mm-hmm. so just make the best food you can and and the yeast will do their job and and you know it's it's yeast that makes beer we're, 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 we we pretend like we do but we don't all right that is it from the chat today and again thank you for joining us on short notice i think come november we will be on a normal Brew Strong schedule. You will know when we're doing the live shows, and you can be here with us in the chat room asking your questions. And, of course, as Jamil said, send all of your topics and different questions to BrewStrong at thebrewingnetwork.com. The rest is up to you. Um, Jamil, did you uh, notice that I didn't wear any shoes today? Oh, <laughs> put those away. Yes, I did. You'll, you'll disgust Justin. Uh, Justin can't handle the foot thing. No. <laughs> put them down. They, they, they were way better than uh, my work shoes. So. I think you need like a no alcohol policy here in the studio. Oh. It just just gets out of control. All right, so, so let me try and wrap up. What we've done here, other than the screwing around and kicking the host in the junk. Oh, uh, that was the most fun, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We talked about, you know, what an enzyme is. It's kind of like a key that unlocks the sugars from the, the starches and makes them, uh, you know, into those sugary things that the yeast can eat and make your beer. Without the enzymes, you could not make beer. The enzymes uh, are are in the barley. They're like a perfect little package, and uh, the maltsters kind of got things prepped for you. And you 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 grind them up, or you know, or mill them, and uh, uh, put in the mash, and and they go ahead at a certain temperature and convert into different sugars, and then even cons- convert other starches like rice or corn. 
into maltose as well or other other sugars that the malt enzymes can make. And uh, this also is happening when you before you get your extract. The extract manufacturer is doing this for you and uh, kind of locking in that fermentability. Of course, you can change that through the addition of other enzymes. So uh, something like a, a, a commercial enzyme that that Colin has uh, secreting around every once in a while, or something you know as common as Beano will do it, and it'll break down those those uh, carbohydrates for you. Uh, you know, unless you want a really dry beer, you want to do that before the boil. The boil will denature it. Denaturing the the enzymes, or you know, busting up these proteins into uh, little bits so they they can't act anymore. It's, again, it's like a key. If you took a key off your keychain and you smash into little bits and try to open your door lock with it, wouldn't work, right? Same thing with the enzymes. So that stops them when they get hot enough. Um, what else? Uh, we also learned what makes a hormone. <laughs> Colin, what has happened? I don't know. This is, you know, it's, it's so yeah, there's when you some disease in, yeah. in the. Don't leave dead airspace. I'm just telling you, just don't leave dead airspace. <laughs> there's something infectious in the studio. I don't know what it is. Yeah. And uh, and don't forget the protein enzymes either. Uh, we yeah the, the, actually yeah very good point thank you John that uh, it's not only uh, you know it's sugars it's um, other things like you know acids and proteins and uh, uh, you know that uh, take the the proteins and chop them up even smaller you know the the head forming proteins if you if you do this too long you can end up with uh, you know a really uh, poor head on the beer, things like that. So there's there's a lot of complex uh, things about enzymes, but I think we got a pretty good overview of what enzymes are and kind of the roles that they play in uh, the brewing process. And I can guarantee you on future shows we are going to cover you know, more specifics about mash temperatures, pHs, how that affects the enzymes, how that affects the final beer, and things like that. We want to kind of give a, a starting kind of education about enzymes before we really got to dig into uh, uh, other aspects of enzymes. Yeah. And in all candor, I can say that if you are interested in more information about enzymes, read How to Brew, because it's yes. in there in Chapter 14. And see, I thought you would you would throw in, like, a Brewing Classic Styles. <laughs> I thought he'd make up for it. Yeah. I thought he would, in all candor, you know, Brewing Classic Styles. No, no. He goes to How to Brew. I, I tell you, you know, what am I working with here? Uh, oh, I, I didn't is... put anything on enzymes in Brewing Classic style. Yeah. I love John I didn't Palmer. even see the word in there. That's a funny man right there. <laughs> F you, Jamil. <laughs> Buy how to brew. Uh, you, know, you find it in the Brewing Network store. It's good thing we check our guns at the door here. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I'm at a loss for words. Uh, you really got you in the balls again. I don't <laughs> Uh, that wasn't what I meant. Uh, you know, I guess I'll return for another show. Uh, I'm not really sure. You know, and I get thought contract this was, out. This, I, th- I thought I wouldn't get like the police say, you know, jab in the in the in the in the groin every once in a while. But hey, apparently, I get it here too. It must be me, not, not all you folks. I tell you, no, if you're listening, uh, you know, there's a lot of other great programming on the Brewing Network. Uh, check it out. There's the Sunday session, which is really my favorite. Uh, there's uh, uh, the Jamil show, which is all about styles with my good friend John Plissay, and uh, there's some great things you can buy in the Brewing Network store that help support the Brewing Network, as well as uh, sub- subscriptions and things like that. If you can uh, help us out by doing that, that would be wonderful. It keeps uh, programming like this uh, live and, and available to you on a regular basis. Until then, a brew strong. Brew strong, everybody. Thanks, Jamil. <laughs> <laughs>